And Jake, that is how you feel like you're coming into a stadium of 30,000 people getting ready to play basketball. My name is John Davis. I'm the production team leader here. And as you can see, that has perks that I can, and it also shows we're big dorks back there too. So I appreciate everyone being here. One quick piece of business before we jump into this. Um, we've got a birthday boy <laughs> tomorrow. We'd like to Wish our pastor, Andrew, a happy birthday. He, like me, will now be 47. Um, somehow the age thing, yeah, I look older than he does. I don't know how that happens. So, but anyway. So um, we've been in this series, The Word, and the year of discipleship. And one note on that year of discipleship, this is really important. We call it the year of discipleship, but we want to make sure you guys realize, like, even though this year of discipleship, that doesn't mean next year that we're not going to keep focusing on discipleship. We're building a foundation out of this thing and um, look for that to continue um, past this point. But in this series, we've been in a series in the beginning and then in the promised land. And <clears throat> through all of these, We've seen that God's heart is to have our heart and for us to love his word. And against all odds, the case was the same. Kings and kingdoms, we see God's work there. And then the current series that we're in, preparing, preparing the way. We saw Isaiah have a divine encounter and be fully committed to God's word. We saw Jeremiah the same way. Daniel, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and all of their conviction, even at the potential cost of their lives, to stay true to the word of God. We saw Esther overcoming the fear of man through the provocation of Mordecai and the need for us to be provoked by the word of God and by others who have our best interest at heart. Then we saw in Nehemiah how good is the enemy of great and how that when we get serious about doing what God wants, that we are going to face opposition when we get into his word, when we get serious about praising him and worshiping him. We saw the work that God did for us in the gospel and the work that we are to do for him in making disciples. And then this last week, Jake brought a message, the word that does the work. And his five points on that are something that we're actually going to use today to guide us in how we respond to today's message. He said that the people gathered around the word, which is what we're doing now. They saw the significance of the word. And I asked that God shows us that, that he gives us the understanding of the word the grief of the word and the joy of the word, and we'll see how those play out later. When Andrew asked me to speak, and I saw that it was about worship, I was like, awesome, that's perfect fit. You know, I work with the worship team week in, week out. Every week I'm with these guys, we get to worship. In addition, I'm like, hey, this is my first time preaching here, so like, tee it up, make it easy for me. Everybody loves worship, right? So it's easy to talk about. Nobody, that's not a controversial subject, so it's going to be good. Um, Merriam-Webster's Merriam dictionary defines worship in the verb form as to honor or show reverence for a divine being or supernatural power. And I think that's what we most often think about, right? We think about worshiping God, and that's what worship is. It also says to regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. And in the noun form, it says extravagant respect or admiration for, for or devotion to an object of esteem. So we see that worship can be not just to God, but it can be to other things as well. So let's jump into this passage um, and this, you know, exciting time of talking about worship. Um, it says, a son in Malachi 1.6, it says, a son honors his father. That's what we do, right? We honor the father. 
and a servant his master. We, we honor our master. If then I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. Andrew, this passage doesn't sound like a happy passage. I'm not sure what you did to me here, but it says, but you say, or but they said, how have we despised your name? It says, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Again, this doesn't sound like happy worship passage. It says, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God. Okay, finally, we get to the favor of God, right? That he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. So we see it's not a happy passage about worship at all. And I warn you, it's going to be heavy today. So let's start with prayer so God can prepare our hearts for it. God, thank you for the opportunity to share your word. It's humbling, God. I know that you are going to try and get into our hearts today. I think about Revelation where you say that you're standing at the door and knocking and that you're waiting for people to let you in. I pray, God, that we would let you in. And not only that we would let you in, but that your Holy Spirit would captivate our minds and our hearts. It's in Christ's name. So we see the title is Worthless, a.k.a. Heartless Worship. The first thing that we see is that heartless worship is called out. Let's go back to the passage. God's calling the children of Israel out. He says, if a son honors his father and a servant his master, he's saying, where's my honor? Where's my fear, says the Lord. His complaint with them is that they've offered polluted food on his altars, that they've offered blind animals in sacrifice, that they've offered lame animals. And for us, that's weird. We don't offer animals, so this may not make sense to us. We may be like, what's this even about? But what we have to understand for context is that this was their economy. This was how they traded. This is how they bartered, how they paid for things, was in livestock and agriculture. So what they were doing was they were holding back their best animals from God and offering the not-so-good ones, and that was his complaint. I want to go back to what we talked about with Jake's message last week. He quoted Nathan Cole, a farmer, and he was talking, Nathan Cole was talking about receiving a heart wound when he heard the word of God. What I'm going to ask us to do today is something that's not normal in our culture, not even normal in our churches. It goes against everything we're taught. But I'm going to ask us to be willing to receive a heart wound today, to allow our wounds to be, our hearts to be wounded. This may be scary to some of you because you may have opened your heart to somebody and they may have wounded you. And they didn't do it for your good, and they left you wounded. Some of us may be too prideful to open our hearts. May go against who we are. But I'm asking you to trust God and remember what Jake said 
that when God wounds our heart, the wound does not stay. He replaces it with his joy. But that doesn't mean that you can just skip over the wound and not take it in and not feel it and not experience it. So that's what I'm asking us to do today. We see more of the heart of the matter of what's going on here with this worship that God hates. We see in Isaiah 29, 13, and the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. So we see that God's issue with them not worshiping is that they're doing it religiously. They're not doing it from their heart. In fact, it says the fear of me is a commandment taught by men. What he's saying is, is someone's told them that they have to be afraid. And I think we've all heard that, like fear God, be afraid of God, be holy. And we're doing it out of fear. We're not doing it out of our heart. We're not doing it out of our very being. So we see how, <clears throat> we see how they were practicing heartless worship. They weren't giving their best, they weren't giving their first, and they were giving their worship to other things. So we've got a baseline for what this heartless worship is. It's surface, it's religious. So now what I want to do is look at the second point, which is the result of heartless worship. Again, for some context here, Malachi is the last chapter, the last prophet in the Old Testament. And what's about to happen for us is just a couple turns in a couple pages turned in the Bible. For them, it's a 400-year period. And it's a 400-year period of silence where God doesn't speak to them. And there's some argument about why this is theologically, why this silence is here. But when we look through the Bible and there's these little periods of silence, or in this case, a large one, it's always about God's people not doing what they're supposed to do. It's always about their heart being far from God. And God goes, enough. You don't want to hear me? You get what you want. We're going to start in the same book before we get into this 400-year period of what this heartless worship led to and see what was already happening in the book of Malachi. In uh, chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? God says, In your tithes and contributions, you're cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse. So what we see is it goes from a heart to a religious practice of worshiping without your heart, going into your actions and your things and not giving what God has required. Moving into this 400-year period of silence, despite the, the lack of Scripture having anything to say about it, there's nothing that the Scripture says about it, a ton happened during this time historically. And please understand, just because God wasn't speaking during that time does not mean that he was not doing a work. He was preparing the way for his son to come to this earth. But what happens during this time, we've already seen through the, the series that we've been in that they were under Persian control at the time. But then what happens is eventually the Jewish homeland was taken over the control from the uh, Persians to the Greek uh, Greeks under Alexander the Great. Um, this was a Hellenistic time period. Hellenistic Judaism was what they talked about, where the Jews tried to take on the culture 
of the Greeks, and in, so, in doing so, they abandoned God's commands, but they were still trying to appear spiritual. And this is the key to what we're going to go through today because we really have to be honest with ourselves. These people believed they were right. They believed they were spiritual. They believed they were in right standing with God. Then we see the Egyptian occupation comes a little, a few hundred years later. The irony of this is, is Egypt is a picture of the world for us because God took the Israelites out of Egypt, much like he takes us out of the world. Now, Israel did not go back to the world or go back to Egypt, but what they did was allow the world to take over their places of worship. They allowed the world to tell them how to worship and what worship looked like. Then we see Roman control. During this time, a lot happened. The Holy of Holies was desecrated. The Roman Empire conquered Israel fully by 63 BC, and then they continued to reign throughout the time of Jesus in the New Testament. But what's interesting during this time is about 120 years before the, the, this 400-year silence ends, we see that groups like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, other independent nationalist groups came to prominence. And we always think about the Pharisees and the Sadducees as religious groups, and they were. They were very devout. They practiced religious um, actions continually. But they were equally political. They did as much political as they did religious. One was very conservative in these two main groups, the Pharisees and Sadducees. And one was very liberal. And they hated each other and both thought they were morally superior to the other. Sound familiar? They bickered, they fought, and yet they still came together in a group called the Great Sanhedrin. It was basically like a large council, similar to Capitol Hill if we're going that route and comparing. But the Sanhedrin functioned as both a Supreme Court as well as a legislature. And catch this, they met at the Hall of Hewn Stones, which was on the Temple Mount. They replaced the place of worship with politics, with arguing, with bickering, with hatred for each other. Jews like Herod cozied up to their en the enemies of God for their own well-being and power. Around this time that the, that the Pharisees have really come into their own, we see John the Baptist come on the scene and we see that only John the Baptist was preparing the way. That's the result of heartless worship. Only one man is preparing the way for Christ to come to this earth. God incarnate's coming to earth and only one man has the capacity to, to do that. We see in Mark 1, 1 through 8, it says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sin. So we see John the Baptist is the only one preparing the way. But in addition to this, the religious didn't recognize that John was preparing the way. So not only were they not part of it, they didn't even recognize that's what he was doing. Jesus says in Luke 7 verse 33, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. So not only did they not recognize that he was preparing the way, 
They believed he was the enemy of God. The one man speaking the word of God, they believed he was the enemy of God. That's the result of heartless worship. In addition, only Simeon and Anna recognized who Jesus was. Do any of you even know who Simeon or Anna are? They're not well-known names in the Bible, right? And yet we look in Luke 2, verse 25. It says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he, Simeon, came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up. He went straight to him, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For, your, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He recognized Christ because he had heart-filled worship. A little further down in the chapter, verse 36 we see that there was a prophetess named Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in her years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was um, 84 years. So the way I read that, she was married for seven years, and then the rest of her time, she was a widow. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, the hour that Jesus was in the temple, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption. Again, setting a little context here, at any given point, there would have been hundreds, if not thousands, of the the most religious, most religiously educated minds in the temple. It would have been full of the most righteous people, people who believed they were the closest to God. And yet two people recognized Jesus and knew who he was. You say, but he was a baby. That would be hard to recognize him. But we still see it's a heart issue even when Jesus started his ministry. In Matthew 15, starting in verse 1, it says, Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of elders? That should be a red flag right there. You hear what he said? The traditions of elders. They're not concerned about whether or not they broke the law or went against the word of God. They're concerned about traditions for they do not wash their hands when they eat. Jesus answered them and said, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me, I'm giving to God, he need not honor his father and mother. So what we see happening here is traditions and just wanting to look so spiritual, they go, you know what? I'm not going to waste my time honoring my mother and my father I'm going to give it all to God so everybody sees me looking spiritual. How many times have we seen church leaders because they don't take care of their families because they want to be in front of everybody? They want to look spiritual. It's heartless worship, guys. So how did Jesus respond to them? He said, you hypocrites. 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you. Remember the passage we just read back in Isaiah? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. Remember the traditions? They're teaching as doctrine, as the very word of God, the commandments of men. Stuff that our culture, stuff that our political biases teach us as the word of God. And he called all the people together and he said, hear and understand I love how he called people out and then he pulled everyone else together and said, let me teach you something here. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. And we know it's because it's what comes out of the heart is what comes out of the mouth. That's what defiles the person. Side note here, but it's important. It says, then the disciples came and said to him, do you, Jesus, do you know? The Pharisees were offended when they heard you say this. They were offended that you were teaching the word. Best advice I can give you is if somebody, especially someone who shows to be spiritual, is always offended, stay away from them. Run away from them. And why? Because Jesus said... Every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Much like Nehemiah, he spoke the truth and then said, forget about them. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. We have to question who we're allowing to guide our hearts. And out of that, we see the third point. Our heart is the true gauge of our worship. I love how Charles Spurgeon said it. I had to get old dead guy quote in here. Um, was not intentional, but I typed in heartless worship, and sure enough, Charles Spurgeon came up right off the bat. But uh, I do love what he said here. It's, he says, if it's heartless worship, it's unacceptable. God cannot receive it. If we've not thrown our heart into it, depend upon it, God will never take it to his heart and be pleased with it. Only that prayer which comes from our heart can get to God's heart. If we pray from our lips or from our throat and not load down from the very affections of our nature, we shall never reach the affections of our Father who is in heaven. With every kind of religious exercise, the soul or the heart is the standard of the whole compass of worship. Proverbs 4.23 has this to say about it. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Everything that we do comes from our heart, including worship. I want to take a minute and just look at what the focus of our heart is. <clears throat> I talked about being willing to receive a heart wound today. If we haven't already started to feel that today, this exercise may cause that to happen. But I want to remind you that it's to draw us closer to God, to give that sacrifice to God of a broken heart. So what I'm going to do is ask everyone to close their eyes. 
and we're trying to see if we're worshiping from our hearts. So what I'm going to do is read off some statements that can help us analyze our heart condition in worship. I'm going to say this statement. Let it settle in your heart. If it doesn't apply, great. If it does apply, then maybe we can start to prepare our hearts to give that to God. Here we go. If I'm not willing to make wholesale changes, I'm not worshiping God from my heart. If I come to a service and God doesn't speak to me, I'm not worshiping God from my heart. If I go a week or even a day without speaking, without God speaking to me or me speaking to God, I'm not worshiping God from my heart. If all my beliefs, morals, and judgments are along party lines, I'm not worshiping God from my heart. If I think being American, not being American, being a Baptist, not being a Baptist, being Southern or being Northern makes me more a Christian, I'm not worshiping God from my heart. If I think my giving makes me better, I'm not worshiping God from my heart. If I'm always the hero of the story, I'm not worshiping God from my heart. If I'm always the victim of the story, I'm not worshiping God from my heart. If when something goes wrong or makes me mad, my first thought is to go to social media, I'm not worshiping God from my heart. If when something goes good or right, my first thought is to go to social media, I'm not worshiping God from my heart. If I can't open my mouth and sing in church, I'm not worshiping God from my heart. If I don't go to God's word first, I'm not worshiping God from my heart. If I don't pray first, I'm not worshiping God from my heart. If I'm not unified with the church body I'm in, I'm not worshiping God from my heart. If I believe I'm better than others, I'm not worshiping God from my heart. If I constantly argue, I'm not worshiping God from my heart. If my first instinct is skepticism, I'm not worshiping God from my heart. If culture influences me more than God, I'm not worshiping God from my heart. If I'm not giving my first and my best, I'm not worshiping God from my heart. And if I feel angry in hearing the word of God, I'm not worshiping God from my heart. You guys can open your eyes. It's hard to allow God to wound our hearts. But remember, God will replace it with joy. And that's where we're heading. And we want to do that today. That brings us to point four. So how do we worship? Heart-filled worship guides the entirety of our lives. First way we worship is we worship God together on Sundays. That's, again, what we think of when we say worship. We're going to go worship this weekend. Psalm 133, verse 1, it says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then in Romans 15, 5 through 6, I love, love this passage. 
May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what's not in that list? The issues of the day. The arguments of the day. No. Grants you to live in harmony with one another. God never called us to argue with each other. He never called us to be hateful with each other. He called us to lift our voice in one voice to glorify him. We also see that we worship from our that worship from our hearts comes out through our mortal bodies. Our eyes, our ears, our mouths, our fingers, our hands and our feet. Micah 6.6 6 says this. Person's asking, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? How can I, how can I make myself righteous? How can I get myself to God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased if I give him thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? If I can do more, will he accept me? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? Let's stop right there. There's only one firstborn that was given for our transgressions. Heartless worship leads to us trying to justify ourselves. In verse 8, he says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. He wants you to walk with him. He wants you to be with him. That's what worship is. Imagine buying gifts perpetually for your spouse. All the time. Amazon's just dropping them continually. Right? But you never come home. You never sit with her. You never eat with her. You never talk with her. You never tell anyone else about her. You never defend her. You never listen to what she's really saying. You know what? The gifts are necessary, yes, but they aren't the thing. They are the result of the thing. Maybe for some of you, you've never experienced the thing and maybe that's why you can't worship God with your heart. We're gonna talk about that because when we worship at the end, I don't think there'd be anything better than for us as brothers and sisters and then new brothers and sisters to worship together and let God replace the wound that we have in our heart with the joy. We see also that we worship God with our time in his word. Psalms 119.97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all day. Hosea 6.6 says, talking about God, he says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. I want your heart. I want the love of your heart and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God's saying, I want you to know me. That's why we're going through this series, The Word, because God wants us to know him, and that's one of the ways we get to know him is in his word, and that's how we worship him. Worship is not just singing. It's not just Sunday morning. Sunday morning is central. It's necessary. Don't lose that. 
but it's the result of the thing. We worship because we've worshiped throughout the week. Another illustration about spouses. Guys, imagine studying your wife academically. You write down how many wrinkles she does or doesn't have. Write down how many gray hairs she does or doesn't have. How her right ear is slightly higher than her left ear. See how that goes, right? But guys, my gosh, like study her with your heart and you'll have her love. It's no different with God. Study him with your heart. We see that we worship God with our prayers. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. God wants us to talk to him all the time. James 5.13, and again, another scripture that I love. It says, is anyone among you suffering, let him pray. If anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. And I love what God does here. He takes what we traditionally think of as worship singing, and he puts it in the same space with prayer and makes us realize that they're the same thing. They're both worship. They're just worship for different circumstances. It's our heart connecting with God. We worship God by leading our families. In Joshua 24, 15, we saw this in an earlier uh, sermon in earlier series. Joshua says, and if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you'll serve, whether the gods of your fa- that your father served in the re- region beyond the river. Are you going to allow family dynamics, how you were raised, to dictate how you worship God? Or are you going to go to his word? Or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell? Are you going to let culture, political biases, whatever it is, whatever's around us right now, is that what's going to, what we're going to put our belief in? Joshua said no. He said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He says, we're going to serve the Lord. Great resource that Karen and I have leaned on very hard in learning how to discipline our children is Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. And in it, he addresses that it's about the heart. He says, all behavior is linked to attitudes of the heart. Therefore, discipline must address attitudes of the heart. What does discipline have to do with worship? If you've ever, if you ever get the opportunity to hear our kids pray for a meal, you will always hear them say, change my heart. That one got me in the first service. It got me in this one too. It's not a prayer we taught them, guys. It's a prayer that came out of us trying our best to teach them to want God to change their hearts and always addressing their hearts in discipline, relationship, and actions and anywhere else we can fit it in. Our goal was always to bring their heart to God. Because if God gets that, he gets all of them. And honestly, what better way to worship God than to create worshipers? You might say, how do I do that? How do I even get started on that? 
easy step. We mentioned it earlier. We've got our family Sunday where we've got parent commissioning. You know what? Something that I didn't mention in that so that we don't sound like we're super parents. Most of what happens is we bring their heart to God and then we just pray because we don't know what we're doing. So that's not abnormal to not know what you're doing as parents. It doesn't come with a guidebook. I mean, it does come with a guidebook, but, right? Come there. Take on that commissioning and just say, God, I don't know what I'm doing, but I want to give my child to you. You take care of the things that I can't take care of. You teach them the things that I can't teach them. And trust in God completely. That leads perfectly into our next point of we worship God by making disciples. We're in the year of discipleship. Again, that's going to keep going, okay? Why do we do that? Because in Matthew 28, 19, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. John Wesley wrote a hymn that if you've been in Baptist churches at all, you're going you're gonna to know, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. And it was this cry, his cry, out of a heart filled with worship that was saying, God, this isn't enough. I wish I had a thousand tongues to sing your praise, to worship you. Thankfully, that doesn't happen because that'd be kind of freaky. If somebody just suddenly had a thousand tongues in their mouth at one time, right? Sorry, I got to make it a little lighter. It's been really heavy here. Um, but again, what better way to expand your ability to worship God than by making other worshipers, by making disciples? And then lastly, we give or we worship by giving. We saw in Malachi 3, verse 8 through 10, it says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You say, How have I robbed you? In verse 10, it says, We said, Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord. And in Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, it says, The point is this whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. It's not just about the amount you give either, guys, because it says each one must give, us, give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I feel like we can replace that word cheerful with a worshipful giver. Final point, this is a really short one. Heart-filled worship will prepare the way. We saw John the Baptist preparing the way. He said, the, the people came to him, the Pharisees came to him and said, who are you? We need to give an answer to those that sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I'm a nobody, but I'm saying make straight the way of the Lord because I have a heart that's worshiping him. John 1:29. we see the next day that he saw Jesus coming towards him. He said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He didn't say, should I talk to them about Jesus? Will they be offended? Is this weird? Are they going to think I'm strange? No, it wasn't even a thought. He didn't even have to go through that process because his heart was already set on worshiping God. 
lastly in Hebrews 13, verse 15. It says, through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to our God. That is the fruit of our lips that comes from our heart that acknowledge his name. We said that God, give us, let us have our hearts wounded. But remember, God doesn't leave it that way. And this is the time where I'm gonna ask us to give those things to God and say, God, I repent. I walk away from not giving you my heart in worship. And the way we're gonna do that, I'm gonna ask you guys to close your eyes one more time. And much like we do with communion, I want us to prepare our hearts I want us to look inside and say, God, take this, this thing that is contrary to you. And I mentioned to you who may not have received Christ yet that what better time, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. And you can have that ultimate heart wound healed today just by simply asking Christ to become your savior. It's as simple as this. You can just pray this prayer with me. God, I know my heart's a mess. You've shown that clearly to me. I know your son died for me to take away my sins and fix this messed up heart. And I accept that. And I give you the entirety of my heart to worship you with everything that I am. Brother and sister in Christ, let us pray this prayer. God, I repent. I turn away from these things that have caused me to not worship you with my heart. I give you my heart. Change my heart. You are my God and I will worship you. Stand up, let's worship God together and let him heal the wounds that we received today.